Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, the last chapter of Matthew's Gospel, found on page 1549 in the Bible provided for you in the pew. Title of our sermon is The King Who Secures Our Victory. And my aim this morning is to declare to you from God's Word that embracing the resurrected Savior leads to a life of joy. My prayer is that we look, as we look through these three points that the text makes about that proposition, that your life can grow in experiencing gospel joy. We'll look first at the reality that when we embrace Christ, we can face our fears, and our fears do not have to crush us when we embrace Christ. In fact, they can be constructive, be used by God to teach us to live under God's authority. Secondly, that a life of joy comes when we place our faith in Jesus Christ in response to His grace. And the third point, which I won't have time to elaborate on, but the text teaches us that followers of Christ now have a task and a mission to be joy spreaders as those who live in and expand a resurrection community. Now, just one comment about the Hebrew literary technique that Matthew uses. Yes, this is written in Greek, but Matthew, a Hebrew, writing to Hebrews wanted them to see both the tone as well as the actions and the message to understand the meaning of what's taking place here. So you should look for the contrast between darkness and light. And darkness is tied to fear and light is connected to joy. And then what intersects these contrasts is authority. When we're under human authority, it leads to darkness. When we're under God's authority, which is declared in the resurrection of Jesus, light appears and it leads to joy. Embracing God's authority leads to a life of joy. Matthew chapter 28. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, all hail, he said to them. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city 
and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted in fear. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Pray together with me now. Father, thank you that you promise that when you arrive, you'll open our eyes, you'll touch our hearts, and you'll teach us marvelous things. Would you do that today? And if there's anyone here that doesn't know the saving touch of the resurrected life of Jesus Christ, may today be their day of salvation. This we pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Matthew wants us to embrace this resurrected Savior leading to a life of joy, and he points to this truth. A life of joy when we encounter fear will keep us from being crushed by that fear. In fact, while it will not keep us from avoiding fear, fear can be constructive. The enemy of joy is fear, and Matthew wants us to see that we will encounter fear in this world. It's God's plan that fear remains even though Jesus has been resurrected. You don't have to be crushed by your fear. In fact, in the gospel, fear can be constructive to change us and to shape us. And what we'll see here is that fear is not equalized by joy. It's not that joy enters in and overtakes fear. What we're taught here is that God's authority breaks in. And God's authority not only dispels fear, but frees us up to joy. As I said, that when we are fearful, we're living in the darkness. And we are anticipating darkness will reign. But when God's authority arrives, he shields us and protects us from giving in to fear. But he brings light. And we'll see that light is the resurrected hope and joy in a relationship with Christ. Now, let's just make some observations. The whole group here is living in fear. The two women are carrying spices to the the tomb, and we're told that they are fearful. The angel says, do not be afraid. What's also noticeable is who is not here. Those disciples who are to be leading and Jesus having commission them that when I leave, you will be in charge. They are not found. Where are the disciples? John tells us that the disciples are in the upper room with the door locked 
for fear of the Jews. Now, Josephus tells us that this was not the first Messiah who started a riot in Jerusalem who claimed to be God's prophet. And regularly in that century, they would arrest those that made false claims. They would punish them, and often they would not only put them to death, but they would put their followers to death as well. So the disciples are in fear that they will be rounded up and made a public spectacle. They're also in grief. They'd really believe that Jesus was different, that he was the one. And their theology said that since he died, God had abandoned him, and therefore he was not the Messiah. The women were in fear. The disciples were in fear. I believe Pilate was in fear. His wife was terrified. Chapter 26 tells us that when Pilate was interviewing Jesus, his wife came to him in terror. And she says, have nothing to do with this man. I had a dream and it's terrorizing me and you should stay away from him. Pilate was fearful. The religious leaders, I believe, were terrified as well. Now, the text tells us that they were obsessed with two things, securing the tomb and controlling the narrative. Even if it meant compromising their morals, breaking God's law and even the laws of Rome with bribery, they had two controlling drives. And securing the tomb had to do with securing their control. They were intimidated by the way that the crowds followed Jesus and they had to control the narrative for fear that they could not quell this uprising and their power would be taken away from them. We're told that the angel appears and a great earthquake moves the stone and these Roman guards are terrified. Men who had seen all types of battles and all types of opposition. It says they're so stunned, they're like dead men. This angel, we're told, speaks to the women, but the Roman guards are stunned, speechless. It's a contrast Matthew wants us to see between fear and God's authority. God's authority is the anti-fear, and it's the protection that our hearts need against real evil that exists in the world. Notice how the text displays God's authority over all realms. Jesus will summarize this at the end of the chapter where he, when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. But we see here that God's authority rules over political powers. Rome was the most powerful empire on the earth, and yet they cannot stop the plan of God. And then these coercive, evil religious leaders with their schemes, the schemes of men cannot thwart the power and plan of God's authority. And then we see his authority over creation in the material world. When Jesus died, we're told that the graves opened up and that dead people were risen from the dead and walked through the streets of Jerusalem testifying of God's authority. Here, the earthquake shakes 
the earth again, and the angel almost humorously is sitting on the stone to remind everyone that God's authority is over the natural world as well. He has authority over the spirit world. And you see this as the angel brings light from heaven. What was the angel wearing? The text tells us lightning clothes. Can you imagine? He was arrayed in lightning clothes. He brought light and joy from heaven. That's the two descriptors that the Bible regularly gives us from heaven. It says heaven is a place full of light and heaven is a place full of joy. And this angel, this minister, this messenger, this warrior sits and humbles those Roman soldiers who are scared to death, bringing the light and authority of God. He's also the authority over death. The tomb is empty. The Romans are speechless. And he's the authority over our, our future. Our future and the future of this world belongs to God's plan, and it operates under and for God's authority. Fear is very powerful in everyone's life, especially in our lives. Fear is this voice in our head that says this. Fear says, I lack. I lack protection. I lack security. I lack knowledge. I lack peace. I lack. And I'm not protected. I'm vulnerable. Fear and that voice in our heads can tell us, I better find some authority. I better do something to protect or control my life. And yet, it has to do with whether you're living in the micro lens of your life or the meta lens of your life. That's a phrase that G.K. Chesterton uses, speaking of this reality that this world will appear both ordered and chaotic. It will appear both curious and dangerous, and we'll find ourselves longing to know more about exploring this world and fearful of what is to come. He says that has to do with if you're looking through the micro lens versus the meta lens of your life. The micro lens is your circumstances, your abilities, your sense of being able to pull yourself up by your own bootstrap, determinism, relationships, advancement. It all rests on you. When others don't do what you want, you become resentful. When you see your failings, you become fearful and you say, I can't get what I want in this world. That's the micro lens. But he says the meta lens is different. It has to do with your worldview. You know, we all have a worldview. We all live by faith. We all have an internal compass. We all have a magnetic north, a north star in our lives, whether we admit it or not, believer or even skeptic. And he says, this is how you evaluate the meta lens. We're all on this rock that we call the earth and we're traveling thousands of miles an hour through the universe. And one day a trap door is gonna open and we're all gonna fall through the trap door to our death. And we'll either fall for millions and millions 
and millions of miles and moments into nothingness or will fall into the arms of an eternal, everlasting Father. That is the meta lens. You only have two choices. You either believe that only what you see exists and therefore it doesn't matter what you fear. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you shall die. Or when you face evil and even your fears, the Christian believes that we're being held by the arms of a heavenly father. Many people who are honest will admit life is fearful enough, but we have no control over our death. We don't know when our heart will stop beating. Amanda Peet is an actress and she'd been successful with her HBO special called Togetherness, which looks at people going through midlife crisis. Stephen Colbert interviewed her and he said, what kind of midlife crisis do you have? You're wealthy, you're beautiful, you have all the right connections. How do you and your team reflect crisis? She said, I fear death. He was stunned and then she said, don't you? And awkwardly he said, well, by and by, we're gonna get to heaven if we wait for the angels. And she said, that's not very inspiring. That doesn't make me feel any better. And most people think it through to that level. This is what they say. Wow, I was really sick. Wow, that diagnosis was really scary. Wow, I'm getting older. And then they say, well, it'll be a better place on the other side. How do you know that? How do you know that your eternal future is secure? Only through the meta lens. Either you're living based on your own strength and hope and fate itself, or you're living under the authority of God's love and care. We're seeing in this text that there's two encounters that teach us about experiencing God's loving care and his authority. First, it's the encounter that the women have with the angels. And then secondly, it's the account, in, encounter that the women have with Jesus. While not giving too much detail, let me just walk you through this encounter with the angel. It really points to this idea of common grace that invites us to contemplate, to come and to see of the salvation we've been talking about. The angel says, come into the tomb. And the angel invites the women to contemplate, to evaluate, to reflect. There was a body, but it's not here. There was a dead man, but the grave clothes have been folded. This didn't belong to Jesus, yet this tomb did not belong to Jesus, but he was placed here. Maybe the tomb was meant for someone else, but Jesus was the one who died. But Jesus is not dead now. Maybe this tomb was meant for me. Maybe his resurrection has something to do with what he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were to die, yet he shall live. To contemplate, to consider, could there be a reversal 
Could there be an exchange? Could there be forgiveness for sinfulness? Could there be life for death? It's this call to contemplate. It's the first step. And if you're a seeker here today, and all this sounds like a whole lot of information, the angel would tell you, you should contemplate, and you should seek, particularly if the record of the resurrection is a trustworthy record, if the changed lives of these disciples is compelling to you, if the history of the church beginning as this band of insignificant people having a powerful influence on the full Roman Empire, if it has any credibility. What do you do if you have a friend or a family member that is cold towards spiritual things? Well, you need to ask for a visitation from an angel. You need to pray, Lord, give that person an earthquake. Lord, rock their world. Lord, cause them to be stunned in their lack of understanding how to get themselves out of the mess they're making of their life. That's common grace. And yet they still need a word and an encounter with Jesus. That's what we see in the second encounter. It's special grace. Grace, according to the Bible, is God's riches at Christ's expense. And we see in Jesus' interaction with these women, we see grace, and it causes us to fall and embrace him by faith. First, where do we see grace? We see that grace always precedes us. It's depicted in the fact that the death of Christ has already been accomplished, all the purposes that God had for the salvation of these women. All the thousands of years of preparation were all preceding grace so that these women could have a head-on collision with their Savior. Grace always precedes us, transpires in the realms before our own circumstances so that we can have a head-on collision with the Savior. Grace precedes us, but grace also meets us. Look at verse 9. On their way to tell the disciples, Jesus met them. We never seek Jesus first. If we are believers, it's because Jesus has come looking for us. It says that I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must seek after them also. We're told that the Son of Man comes to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus precedes us in grace. He meets us. Every encounter of the resurrected Christ in the Gospels tell us that Jesus meets those that he finds unexpectedly. In the upper room, he walks through the wall. When Thomas is not, not there and demands to see those scars, he comes back a week later. He meets those on the road to Emmaus. He initiates towards Peter by the shore of Galilee. Grace precedes us, it meets us, but God's grace greets us. In verse 9, it says, greetings. Now, that Greek phrase, greetings, is actually two words, all hail. Sometimes it's translated rejoice. But just let this fall on you for, for one minute. Can you imagine with me 
the resurrected Jesus walks into your presence and says, all hail. Hail means health, prosperity, wholeness, peacefulness, restorative fullness. Jesus says to you who belong to him, all will be well. You're already well. I died the death that you deserve. I went to the place that you could never have borne. And all will be well. It's amazing that he greets us, that we might be full of authority. The thief on the cross recognized this. You know that he was cursing the Savior, and the other thief was cursing the Savior. And as he watched his authority, Jesus' authority to love even his enemies, it melted his heart. And what did he say? I want to be under the authority of God. Remember me when you're in, ki in your kingdom. Please do not let your authority crush me. I ask that your authority save me. Have you said and bowed the knee? Please save me. That's what faith is. It's clinging to the feet of Jesus. It's a life of worship that says, all my life, you're everything I ever wanted. And now I bow my knee and my heart. You're the most beautiful. You're the most helpful. You're the most valuable. You've brought me forgiveness. You've brought me power and hope and triumph over death and eternal security and joy eternal joy. If you are a doubter and you have questions about this reality, first I'd love for you to see me. I'd like to share with you some things that would be encouraging for you to read. But what you need to study is this question. Did the resurrection really happen? Your friends and family will tell you that you're wasting all your other time studying anything else until you settle with this reality. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Because if he rose from the dead, then all your other questions will eventually be settled in his claim and his accomplishment. C.S. Lewis's friends loved him enough to have these conversations. Hugo Dyson, Owen Barfield, J.R. Tolkien were his friends at Oxford. And he claimed to be an atheist, and he said, Christianity brings no advance or advantage to me. But they helped him see that inside all of us and inside every story of literature, there's this longing for meaning and hope and there's this conflict of disappointment because of evil inside us and evil in this world. If man could heal himself and man could evolve beyond his own limits, there wouldn't be world wars. There wouldn't be hate and evil and brokenness and rejection. So he knew that the human answer lacked, but he also saw this longing in literature. His friends said to him, study the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He'd written it off as just a myth. He said that it gave no credibility, but over a two-year period, he began to get very uncomfortable. In his book, Surprised by Joy, where he describes his conversion, he has a chapter called 
checkmate. He said, this is when God put my heart in checkmate because as I studied the resurrection narrative, I actually became more convinced and more dejected. I became more aware and confident that the gospel was true and also more reluctant because I knew I would have to bow my knee to this king. He said, just to be honest, I had had God in checkmate my whole life. I thought I could hold him off and that if I needed him, I might offer a prayer. When I felt fearful, I might reach out to him, but God had my heart in checkmate. So in 1929, he said, as the most reluctant convert ever in England, I bowed my knee to what I thought was servitude to a master. But he said, what happened next I didn't expect. What happened next was my heart began to be full, overflowing with joy as I embraced this Savior. In fact, he became my life and now my focus is not on gaining joy. My focus is on the object of my joy. He is now supremely the desire of my life. He is my pathway to joy. That is faith in God's grace, faith in the resurrected Christ. Have you ever trusted Christ? Have you ever had that experience? Have you fallen at his feet and worshiped him as your savior? So what we do week by week is remind ourselves that he is our authority and that we're to live under his protection. That's point number three of which I want addressed today. But you see in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, a creed. It was the first creed of the early church. In fact, the old Roman symbol, which was required when you converted to Christianity in Rome in the first century, you quoted Matthew 28, 18 through 20. That creed became what is now our Apostles' Creed. But before you bowed the knee to Jesus, you quoted that you are ready to join the resurrection community. What you see in Matthew 28 is that now the people of God have been called to be the resurrection community, that we are to bring light to dark places. We're to bring hope to fearful hearts. We're to bring joy and spread joy. Our king lives. Our king loves. Our king will come again. Our king heals our hearts. Our king gives us a reason for living. And what we're called to do is to teach each person in this community to live between the bookends that you see in Matthew 28. Do you see these bookends? that Jesus has given us. He says, the resurrected community teaches us to flourish inside those bookends. One bookend is all authority has been given to me, says King Jesus. And the other bookend is I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The resurrected community lives between the bookends that he will never leave us and we can live under his authority. It was so tender when Jesus told Mary, tell my brothers I will meet them in Galilee. Jesus had never called his disciples his brothers. He called them his servants. 
He called them his friends. But now the resurrected Savior says, we're part of the brotherhood. You can join the resurrection community that has been created called the Church of Jesus Christ. He could have said, tell those betrayers I have something to say to them. Tell those sleepers that I've got to teach them to be disciplined. He could have said, tell those cowards that we're never going to do what we need to do until they ship up and change. But he says, tell my brothers. It's a place of fellowship for the unworthy. It's a safe place for struggles. It's the resurrection community that we're called to live in. Just a few reflections as your pastor, and then we'll close. First, all our lives is always going to be lives filled with facing fear. But if you notice the phrase, it was toward dawn. Now, the NIV doesn't actually clarify that's two words. It says that this was before dawn or towards dawn. If you've ever been up early in the morning when it's pitch dark, toward dawn is there begins to be an illumination of light. It's not distinct, it's distant, but it tells you the dawn is coming. Dear believer in Christ, because of the resurrection, resurrected Christ, you live toward the dawn. This means that because you live toward the dawn, you never have to allow fear to control you. You may have to live with fear. It can never harm you again. You can smile at the future because those who are resurrected with Christ live toward the dawn. Secondly, are you a member of a resurrection community? And have you book in your life between bowing your knee to the authority of Jesus and be reminded week by week and day by day that he is with you always? That's why corporate worship on the Lord's day and membership is so important. Hebrews 13 says, obey your leaders, submit to their authority as those who have charge over you in the Lord. Do you know who your leaders are? Have you submitted to their authority? Living under the authority of a local church keeps you under the authority of King Jesus and keeps you growing in the faith. And then lastly, I'll remind you, he will be with you always. Through your hurts, through your doubts, you're free now to live a life of joy and a life of worship. I'm going to close by something I read in a newsletter from Johnny. If you know Johnny Erickson Tata, Johnny and Friends is a ministry to families who've been impacted by disabilities. Johnny herself, as a young teenager, was diving into a lake and she hit a stump and broke her neck and has lived her life as a quadriplegic. And while she first was bitter towards God, God met her and not only gave her joy in her life, but has given her a ministry that spread literally all around the world. Johnny tells a story that she was at a banquet. And at this banquet, the speaker did something that no one expected. He said at the end of his message, I'd like to ask everybody to kneel and bow and uh, we're going to spend the last minutes in prayer on our knees. 
Of course, as a quadriplegic in her wheelchair, she could not bow. But then the tears started rolling, and they kept coming, and they kept coming, and she couldn't stop sobbing. Afterwards, when it was through, her friend came over to her and just saw her face and saw her tears, and she said, I'm so sorry. I'm sure that was embarrassing. I'm sure you felt so awkward that of everybody in the room that you could not do what everybody else was doing. I hope that didn't discourage you. And as she continued to sob, finally she said, that's not why I was crying. She said, I made peace with God and with that a long time ago. She said, I started thinking about one day when I get my resurrection legs. And yes, I'll run with my resurrection legs. And yes, I'll dance with my resurrection legs. But I'll bow, bow my resurrection knees. And I will worship my Savior on my knees. And I was tearful because I do not have the opportunity in this world to bow my knee to my Savior. I long for heaven and for the resurrection. Philippians 2 says, God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm going to ask something of you. You don't have to do it. You may not feel physically like you can do it. You may not feel spiritually like you're willing to do it. I'm going to ask that we finish this service on our knees, that you take those kneelers and you bow before the King of Kings together. I invite you to kneel. Jesus, Jesus, we praise you that you bowed the knee to your Father's will and said, I will drink the cup. I will take the cup of wrath. King Jesus, you bowed the knee to the incarnation. King Jesus, you bowed the knee to death, hell, and the grave to defeat it so that we would never be defeated by death, so that we would never taste separation from the Father. Lord, I pray that you would remind us that Bowing before you is our greatest joy in life. We pray this in your name. Amen.